climate change has been called the ultimate collective action challenge because nobody wants to be the one who moves first. You want to use your natural resources or your fossil fuels in order to gain as much revenue as possible and the adjustment is going to be difficult. Hello, this is the Weekly Tradecast, a podcast brought to you by UNCTAD, the UN's trade and development body. I'm Sarah Toms. We're exploring how major events are shaping trade and development and how that affects billions of people around the world. At the recent COP27 climate summit in Egypt, world leaders agreed to set up a loss and damage fund to support developing countries hit the worst by storms and drought as the planet heats up. But there was little progress on cutting emissions and the big question was pushed down the road. Who should pay to fix climate change? Well, money has long been a sticking point, along with making good on existing commitments. A decade ago, the world's advanced countries pledged to mobilise 100 billion US dollars every year by 2020 to help developing countries move to cleaner energy and protect themselves against climate change. So far, those promises have not been met. Only a tiny sliver of financing has gone towards efforts to adapt to climate change, To date, a large amount of the money has been offered as loans, which developing countries often struggle to repay. For many countries most at risk from climate change, getting locked into a spiral of debt is costing their economies and people dearly as they try to cope with environmental hazards not of their own making. Joining me now is Katie Gulligley Swan from UNCTAD's Globalization Development and Strategies Division. Katie specializes in gender and environmental issues and loves being outdoors on long hikes. Well, thanks for joining us, Katie. So let's start with climate. There are many questions, but obviously not much agreement about funding this fight against climate change. Now, from your perspective, who should pay, who should get the money and how should it be spent? So you mentioned the $100 billion, which was pledged in 2009 in Copenhagen and has not yet been met. But from our analysis pre-pandemic, we were saying at UNCTAD that the real number was closer to $2.5 trillion dollars per year in additional financing for both climate and development goals. Now, that number is already out of date, of course, because the pandemic has changed a lot of development trajectories. I think really grasping the Mm. difference in scale between what we're pledging, what we're committing, and what is actually needed is really important to lay the foundations for this conversation. Now, when we look at historic and current climate emissions or, or greenhouse gas emissions, it's very clear that advanced economies have the biggest responsibility because of their industrialization, which depended on fossil fuels. Developing countries, they say they didn't cause this problem and they can't afford the consequences, not least the repayment of loans. 60% of low-income countries in or on the the edge of debt distress, Uh, 30% of emerging markets are in the same position. Um, And what that means is that the resources that these countries have available to spend on, you know, social objectives or even healthcare, never mind climate, Mm. is incredibly squeezed at the moment. 
I think the second thing, and related to that debt challenge, is the exposure to financial volatility. We've seen that in 2022 with the effects of commodity speculation mm. and you know monetary tightening in advanced economies. Mm. The knock-on effect is on the economic prospects of developing countries being able to have any space at all to invest. And then the last thing I would mention as a, as a major challenge um, is the expense in being able to access external financing. Developing countries are seen as much more risky investments um, and that coupled with the financial volatility um, and the likelihood of you know, capital outflows the minute a crisis strikes, it's very expensive for them to get the sort of private investment that's necessary. So those considerations taken together points to a policy response which demands increasing public finance, not just from advanced economies in the form of climate finance and overseas development assistance, but also in the form of using our multilateral financial institutions to better resource this challenge. Advanced countries could argue that they can't afford to finance this either. And I think that that is an important consideration, um, to recognise that it's not... um, a, a limitless, uh, a, a bottomless set of resources. And advanced economies released more than $17 trillion to tackle uh, the pandemic, to try and safeguard their economies and their people. When the political will is there, the mm. money can be moved. That's a big question, isn't it? How do we measure whether climate change financing is working and whether you, know, you could say you're getting bang for your buck? It's still a debated space how to even measure uh, CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. So I think it is a difficult question about how to measure um, the outcomes of financing. I think ultimately what we have seen is that Climate strategies work best when they are locally owned, when they are nationally determined. But as well, I think we need to be measuring not just how much carbon has been reduced, Mm -hmm. but also the development indicators. I think that there's a growing progress in a lot of actors, both public and private, recognising the importance of aligning their activities with climate goals. However, I think that there are questions, you know, the importance of scrutiny of these sorts of commitments Mm. to make sure that they aren't a cover for greenwashing, but that they actually live up to the goals and the commitments that those institutions have made. So I think it's really important to have a combination of working together on voluntary and cooperative initiatives, but also public institutions scrutinising and making the benchmarks that these private actors need to meet. What's the best way to actually disperse this funding to get maximum effect? The first would be whether you are delivering that bilaterally or multilaterally. Is it going via an individual country, an advanced economy directly, or is it going into a climate fund? Um, The second consideration would be the source of where where that money is getting to. Is it going to private actors, civil society? Is it getting to the national climate funds that, that are that are in many countries around the world. And then last consideration that I would mention here is on whether it is in the form of grants or loans. As it stands, we know that more than 70% of climate finance is delivered in the form of loans, which you know can compound fiscal difficulties mm. that countries are facing. We are not getting enough grant financing, which is critical for delivering on mm. adaptation. Adaptation being where countries prepare for irreversible impacts on lives and livelihoods. So that's 
demands grant and public financing to make sure that that can go off the ground. Only 8% of climate finance globally is spent on adaptation, which, as we've seen from the devastation of recent climate disasters, is just not enough. So taking those things together, we need more dependable, reliable and regular financing that's getting to national institutions and that is also coming in the form of grants. What about the challenges of loss and damage? Loss and damage refer specifically to the losses and damages that a country or a community or individual might face as a consequence of a climate disaster. And for countries particularly small countries with small GDPs, they can absolutely absolutely be devastating. For example, you know, many countries like the Dominican Republic have completely had their GDP wiped out overnight by a climate disaster. We know that mitigation could need some private finance and some public finance. We know that adaptation needs to be largely public finance. But for loss and damage, who's going to resource the recovery? Um, because more debt, will only push them further into a vicious cycle. I mean, I think that climate change has been called the ultimate collective action challenge because nobody wants to be the one who moves first. You want to use your natural resources or your fossil fuels in order to gain as much revenue as mm. possible. And the adjustment is going to be difficult. It'll touch on every aspect of our lives. But ultimately, delaying that action is a suicide pact. It means we will only be delaying the, the, the even worse impacts down the line if countries can't be brave now and make that action. Do you see any other encouraging signs of progress? You know, perhaps something like new technology or developments with renewable energy? I think there has been a lot of progress in particular on connecting the silos of the climate world and the global economic governance world. Um, I think we've also seen progress in advancing the concept of the just transition, which is fundamentally about trying to make sure achieving climate goals can also secure social and economic and development goals. Thank you to UNCTAD's Katie Gullagly Swan for being this week's guest. Tune in to the weekly Tradecast next week and every week for more insights on the most pressing issues around the world of trade and development. There's even more on our website, unctad.org. I'm Sarah Thomas in Geneva. Goodbye for now. <laughs>